Well, it's been a second day of mourning and shock, disbelief in Japan after former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, one of the giants of post-war Japanese politics, was shot and killed while giving a campaign speech early Friday local time. Uh, ahead of elections this week. And the 67-year-old was the country's longest-serving post-war prime minister when he resigned in 2020. Now, one of the things that's that's most remarkable as well about the assassination is it comes in a country where gun crime is nearly unheard of. It's obviously led to an outpouring of tributes from world leaders, including Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who said Canada had lost a close friend who was a thoughtful, compassionate, and strong leader. He was a great friend and a partner to Canada. He was a man of immense talent, and not just his family, not just the entire country of Japan, but the entire world feels his loss. You know, political assassinations, I was thinking back to the ones that I remembered best. Uh, perhaps Anwar Sadat, because I was the right age to remember the shooting of Ronald Reagan, obviously stood out. He survived, obviously, but that one stood out uh, to me as well. Um, police have arrested the suspected gunman. He was arrested at the scene of the attack. He's been identified as a 41-year-old, a former member of Japan's Navy. His motive tonight remains unclear. It's not believed necessarily to have been political, so who knows? Uh, Trudeau says the attack demands pushback, though, against rising violence and threats that are harming democracies everywhere. We must all join together in condemning and pushing back against any threats of violence, any threats of intimidation and division that undermine the public space that we occupy in a democracy in which we all feel safe to contribute, to share, and to serve. Police say the gunman used a weapon that was obviously homemade and that similar weapons were found in his home. Well, joining me now from Japan, where it is Saturday morning, is Philip Lipsy. He's a professor of political science and director of the Center for the Study of Global Japan at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. Thanks so much for your time today, tonight. Well, thank you for having me. Just the reaction, I mean, it must be bewildering for Japan right now. I, I think that's absolutely right. Um, there is a very pervasive sense of shock and disbelief, um, even uh, today, one day after um, the assassination took place, that this kind of violence uh, could happen, uh, particularly during a major national election campaign uh, to a very prominent political figure. Uh, so, you know, it's basically 24-7. Uh, um, if you turn on the TV, they're, they're talking about this, and I'm sure they'll be talking about it for some time into the future. What has been the tone of it? I mean, I've spent some time in Japan. It's one of the, it's a place you feel uh, almost alarmingly safe. Uh, gun crime is unheard of. Uh, what has been the tone today? What are, what are the questions being asked in Japan today? Absolutely. Um, I think across the political spectrum, uh, there there was very angry condemnation towards um, the assassin and the senseless violence that took uh, his life. Even the leader of the Communist Party, uh, which is on kind of the polar opposite in terms of political ideology. He came out very strongly, um, you know, kind of uh, remembering, uh, you know, his uh, public debates with Abe, but saying that this kind of violence has no place 
in Japanese society and you hear the similar kind of messages coming in from uh, the business community, NGOs, um, and of course, the international community, which, uh, you know, Abe cultivated so effectively during his time as, as prime minister. So, you know, there, there's a very strong sense that Japanese democracy uh, is under distress and that this kind of act cannot be condoned. Um, and I think the country is coming together in that sense. Um, you know, uh, there, there is an, an active debate about, you know, Abe's controversies and whether this was justified or something like that. There's just universal condemnation. I guess, I mean, we, the amount of information released about the suspect was, was, was done pretty quickly, what we knew about him. Um, and I guess we don't know much about anything else, though, other than who he was. And it appears, again, getting a gun in Japan, I gather, is next to impossible, uh, that these were homemade weapons. Yeah, um, I think, you know, the, the information that you have is about as good as what I have. Um, it's relatively limited at the present time. Um, it, it appears from the photographs um, that are widely circulating that, uh, yes, the weapons were essentially homemade. And um, I suppose this is somewhat of a testament to the strength of Japan's gun control regime that, um, you know, th this type of violence requires that kind of, uh, you know, kind of uh, in independent work to actually construct a, a firearm out of individual parts. Um, so it wasn't a weapon that he acquired um, commercially, for example. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the details about the motive are, are still relatively vague. And it might be because the uh, assassin hasn't really um, revealed everything at this point. But I'm sure we'll be seeing more information coming out um, in the coming days. The one thing, I mean, I've seen lots of politicians speak. I didn't see anything about where uh, former Prime Minister Abe was standing yesterday and the lack of security around him that would raise alarm bells. It's quite common when you see politicians giving sort of stump speeches like he was outside Nara's train station. Nara's a pretty quiet place in general. Uh, has there been a debate already about, about the security situation and just how perhaps he should have been better protected? I, I've seen some discussion of this, but I, I, it's a it's a tough one because you know as as you mentioned, Japan is such a safe country. Gun violence is so rare, and and one uh, attractive um, part of the politics of Japan is that politicians aren't fearful of their fellow citizens. And if you go to your local train station during an election, you'll almost always see. Um, a candidate or a politician uh, talking to their supporters with very minimal security, shaking hands and, and so forth. And so, you know, there, there has been some criticism, some questions raised about the level of security uh, during this incident. But, you know, if you try to beef up um, that security presence, it, it may also take something away from uh, retail politics in Japan and, you know, the sense of uh, connection and trust between politicians and citizens. So I, I suppose my guess would be that it, it's unlikely to lead to uh, major changes like that, just because it, it does at this point look more like a one-off incident. It wasn't an organized um, effort and, um, you know, the sort of level of sophistication in terms of 
creating these homemade weapons um, seems very unusual. Because Japan did have some so-called political violence long ago, but it's been non-existent for years now. It, it hasn't been quite non-existent, but certainly right. rare. Um, you know, there, there have been assassinations of local uh, politicians, um, a very prominent LDP politician had his home burned down. And so, you know, there, there are specific incidents like this, but certainly, you know, Abe was the longest serving prime minister, uh, a very prominent politician, still a highly influential figure. Um, and, and so the sort of magnitude of the situation, I, I would consider to be uh, quite different and, and unique, um, certainly in the post-war period. You know, get, getting into the pre-war period, this, this type of violence was much more common, but uh, it, it's still a, a profoundly shocking event. Yeah, I think there was the mayor, one of the mayors who was who was assassinated allegedly, or I, I gather by the, by the yakuza, right? There was some sort of, uh, yeah, but nothing on on right. this level. Um, no. When we come back, we will talk about Shinzo Abe's legacy because it was a quite an influential one on Japanese politics, certainly post war politics and twenty first century politics specifically. Uh, we'll be back with that. My guest this half hour is Philip Lipsy, a professor of political science and director of the Center for the Center for the Study of Global Japan at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at U of T. He happens to be in Japan now, where, of course, there's a country in mourning after the assassination of former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe yesterday morning, Friday morning, uh, about 24 hours ago, uh, while giving a campaign speech outside a train station in uh, the city of Nara, um, not known as a particularly tumultuous place, Nara. Um, Reading a lot today about Shinzo Abe's legacy, and it was interesting, first of all, just how much of an impact he had as a post-war prime minister and how long he was in power. But he really sort of changed the tone in Japanese politics, didn't he, in the 21st century, sort of a country that had long looked back at at what had happened in the Second World War. And he had sort of was much less apologetic about the past. That's right. Um, You know, throughout his political career, this was one of his agenda items to essentially the way he saw it move beyond the past um, and to uh, shift to a forward-looking foreign policy. And and so, you know, he acted on that set of ideas when he was prime minister, essentially by trying to create moments of closure. Uh, you know, he became the first Japanese prime minister to uh, visit Pearl Harbor and uh, President Obama visited Hiroshima. And he also tried to negotiate an agreement with the South Korean government uh, that would um, essentially resolve uh, bilateral tensions over the comfort women issue. And, And that proved to be unsuccessful. Ultimately, the tensions have continued to fester in, in many ways. Um, but, but he did um, attempt to shift that narrative. And um, in Japan, I think this reflects a generational change. The number of people who lived through the Second World War has been dwindling. Uh, it's an aging society. But, um, you know, the, these are events that took place, after all, 70 plus years ago. And, and so, you know, there, there's a younger generation now that feels that, um, you know, this is something that happened in the history books. And why does Japan need to continue apologizing for these historical events? And Abe 
articulated that view um, throughout his career. But, you know, that said, I think it's also important to understand that as prime minister, he adopted a relatively pragmatic approach. Um, Initially, some thought that he would be a bit of a ideologue, a nationalist. And there were some elements of that during his rule. But he also uh, very uh, actively engaged with China and improved relations for example. Uh, And, uh, you know, South Korea, I think, stands out as the one bilateral relationship where relations remained uh, troublesome and difficult. Um, But he also tried very hard, for example, to uh, reach a peace treaty with Russia, uh, one of the little bits of unfinished business from the Second World War. And that that was also a failed effort. Um, So he, he, he played a very active role in, 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 in these issues. And, uh, you know, I think that is one legacy uh, that he leaves behind as well. I remember from my time in China that he could prove to be quite a controversial figure, at least in Beijing. Uh, how, how did that, I mean, you mentioned that he had improved relations, but I, I know there were things that he did too. He sort of, he was a muscular Japan that, uh, that, that China didn't like at all. How do you think his, his assassination will impact that relationship between these two countries as it enters yet another complicated phase? I think I think the irony is initially, um, you know, certainly the Japan-China relationship when I became, became prime minister uh, was very cool, and uh, you, you know the uh, you know sometimes you can pull up photos of Xi Jinping and Abe and, and sort of see them you know standing next to each other, frowning, and obviously sort of very unhappy to be in the same space with each other. But by the, by the end, you can sort of put these pictures in line and, you know, there's little smiles that appear on their faces. And, that, you know, by the end of Abe's tenure, it actually begins to resemble a relatively warm relationship. And I, I think the key turning point there was um, the U.S. Uh, political situation and Donald Trump essentially initiating a trade war with China on the one hand and then um, pulling out of some key institutions that were the pillars of the post-war international order that Japan has relied on uh, for many years. And so I think there was a sense on both sides that there might be some room for improved relations, that there, there was an opportunity and, and a need to uh, at least move things in a positive direction. And I, and I think, to Abe's credit, um, he was able to do that despite this um, history, as, as you mentioned, of um, uh, taking positions on issues of historical memory that are uh, extremely controversial in, in China. When you look at, um, I mean, Shinzo Abe, let's be frank, was one of the few Japanese prime ministers that I think many people outside the borders of Japan knew. He was perhaps the most famous prime minister that they've had. Uh, how is his relationship with Canada and what impact will that, uh, will his will his passing have on, on what may lie ahead for Japan's relationships with us? And what did he do with Canada sure. at the time? Sure. Uh, yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, as with many of his uh, relationships with foreign leaders. Uh, Abe uh, was able to establish uh, a close working relationship with um, particularly Justin Trudeau, and uh, uh, this contributed to considerable improvement in bilateral relations. Per- perhaps the most uh, prominent example was with the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, Trade Agreement 
which the United States pulled out of immediately after uh, Trump became president. And Japan and Canada uh, played a very important role in resuscitating that uh, agreement and, and, and making sure that it wouldn't fall apart completely. Uh, but there was active um, uh, exchange uh, and uh, mutual support for person-to-person exchange, uh, scholarly exchange. And I think uh, if you follow the policy dialogue on, on both sides today, there is a very strong sense that um, uh, Abe's government left uh, forward momentum and, and that there was something to build on here. And I think this connects directly into the Indo-Pacific strategy that Canada is currently uh, developing. And this idea of the Indo-Pacific really was the brainchild of Abe. And so that language, as well as the idea that Canada can play uh, a crucial role in, in the region, uh, is deeply intertwined, I think, with Abe's legacy. Now, certainly, I think Canada uh, doesn't have identical interests with Japan, and so the strategy won't be uh, exactly the same. But, uh, you know, the fact that that strategy is being developed and will likely uh, pull uh, many ideas and concepts from the Japanese vision um, is, is something that we can trace back to Abe as well. Philip Lipsy, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you. Happy to be here.